Father, we thank you for this Sabbath day. We thank you for the privilege we have of uh, gathering and spending some time. And Lord, I just pray that you would make this time beneficial, that you would oversee all that's said and done and grant your spirit's guidance and, and leading here. And may we gain something of a practical, valuable nature, something that we can put into useful work for you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Um, my thought for this first meeting was to just kind of cover a little more informally than maybe I do in a lot of other meetings, just some of the history from what I'm calling it is from Minneapolis on. Okay. I don't know how many of you are specifically uh, here because you or intrigued with the 1888 aspect. Um, I'm a flexible guy, and if you, uh, you know, raise up, uh, raise another question or something, that's fine too. I'm used to teaching class rather than preaching sermons, so you know, hands in the audience are, are a good thing. That's fine. Um, but I'd like to try and just kind of paint a, maybe a big picture of the whole 1888 message. Um, sweep of events over the last hundred plus years. And um, I have the advantage of some people in the audience that probably know details that I will mess up and please correct me. Okay, some of you. <laughs> Looking at you, Fred. Because uh, <laughs> um, like I say, this is not something I'm, I'm working off of heavily researched notes, but uh, I wanted to just try to get a, a general a general picture out there of the way I view it at least, and maybe it'll be helpful and useful to you, okay? Um, does, does anybody know, can we just pull those plugs? This, this, it's just a little unnerving. I keep thinking I'm gonna get a wave in my back or something here. <laughs> Yeah, phew. It's it's going, it's going, yeah. Keep keep pulling. <laughs> it's still it's still playing. No, it's still. Yeah, it's it's they're both they're I think they're both playing and the, the woofer kicks in every now and then. Oh perfect. Phew. It's been too long since I've been to the ocean, obviously. I was getting Getting nervous. Okay. <clears throat> well, let's start over again, kind of, for audio versus sake here. Uh, I wanted to do a sort of an informal review of the history from Minneapolis on, trying to uh, just follow the idea uh, of the 1888 message and, and kind of how it's tied in and how it's played uh, a role in Adventist history for the last, what is I figured out this morning, 123 years or something like that, whatever it's been. Um, I'm sure we have people here with varying levels of, of uh, familiarity with this topic. So uh, suffice it to say early on here that, um, that we're talking about Ellet Joseph Wagoner and Alonzo Thaddeus, no, Trevier, Alonzo Trevier Jones 
and the 1888 Minneapolis General Conference. Yeah, they're fine. Thank you. Um, <clears throat> there are a lot of a lot of historical accounts available. Uh, just in fairly recent years, actually, um, I um, what I first heard about this probably say in the 70s. This is the first time I heard anything about 1888, um, and there wasn't that much information out there. Most of the most of the materials that have been published have been published since then, or in, in a lot of ways. So it's been an interesting development of things. Um, probably the thing that that drives the discussion was the statement that I had up on the screen this morning. That um, did I have it this morning? The loud crying? Yeah. Okay. I'm getting confused. Which presentation is which? Okay. Um, saying that the, the loud cry had begun. Now, I'll be addressing that again this evening, um, so I don't want to steal all my thunder here on that, but, um, but um, that's, that's clearly puts the 1888 situation into a category by itself. Uh, and it's important. I mean, how could you say that something that led up to at least the beginning of the loud cry, you know, it's, that's important. It's got to be important. And... To ignore that seems unthinkable. And yet, there's quite a bit of history where we tended to just ignore it. Let's see if I can uh, kind of go through, quickly speaking, the, the turn of events. By about 1890, I think it was, Elder Wagner was had been uh, requested to go to England. 1891, Ellen White was requested to go to Australia. And that pretty effectively broke up, so to speak, the trio of Jones, Wagner, and White that had been traveling around and, and preaching this message. Um, Jones, of course, was still in the United States. And probably partially because of that. When it comes to materials, contemporary materials from the times, we have more from him, I would say, than we do from the others, although, of course, Ellen White, you know, it's, uh, there's a, a ton of it that came out in the 1888 materials, you know, but, but in just the, the explicit materials on the 1888 message, you, you go through Jones's General Conference series, what, he had one in 1893 and 1895. Um, you can get a few other things that were published here and there. There was a series that was done in Ottawa, Kansas, that uh, some friendly non-Adventist reporter took down verbatim, you know, and you can read through that one. And, and all sorts of So we, I, I think it's safe to say we have more explicit material on the subject from Jones than we do from the, the other two. Um, but things were never quite the same after the, the trio kind of split apart. Jones and Wagner received a lot of opposition. <clears throat> one, of the, um, one of the toughest things to deal with is opposition from your own side, 
so to speak, your own brothers and sisters, as it were. Um, we have numerous examples in Adventist history of good people doing good things who have fallen by the wayside, largely it would appear, as a result of not being able to relate and to deal with the opposition that came from those who should have been supporting them. Um, Jones and Wagner are probably the most obvious examples. The other big one, to my mind, would be Dr. Kellogg. Um, <clears throat> what was the big issue in 1888? That's, that's, you know, people, people question this. Um, sweeping with a fairly broad brush here, a lot of folks at the time were focused on the law in Galatians. There was a theological distinction between the way these guys saw it and the way those guys saw it. And there was a great deal of concern over that. Ellen White, however, would write and say, as to the law in Galatians, I have no burden and never have had. It is not an important issue. Okay. Well, if everybody else thought their argument was over the law in Galatians, and Ellen White didn't think that was an important issue, what was it that she was writing about saying it was so good? You know, I mean, it wasn't their position on the law in Galatians. So what did she see in 1888 that was so commendable? I kind of like the way she expressed it. She said that Elder Wagner's sermons presented the matchless charms of Christ. And when you put that together with the statement that I used first one this morning, it's been Satan's determined purpose to cause men to look to man and expect great things from man and not look to Jesus in whom our hopes of eternal life are centered. I think that there is more serious reality to the idea that the key attraction was simply the matchless charms of Christ. Ellen White was often very <clears throat> deliberate in her use of language. And when you stop and think about it, what is she saying when she says the matchless charms of Christ? You know, I can easily react to that. I can react to, just from my personality, I can react to that, the use of, her use of the word charms. And I can, I, I, my gut level is almost an, oh, some sort of an emotional, vague something. Oh, he's a nice guy. I'm not sure that's what she had in mind. The, the matchless qualities of Christ, the matchless abilities of Christ. Jesus does for us things that no one else can do. Got to get used to that. <laughs> yeah. If you want divine strength, if you want divine wisdom, it's going to come from him. It's not going to come from me. It's not going to come from brother so-and-so or elder so-and-so or whoever. Jesus is in a category of his own. Jones and Wagner presented a dependence on Christ. And I would say that they felt that dependence themselves. Now the thing that <clears throat> the thing that is troublesome, so to speak, 
is when you have somebody who's depending on God, it's pretty well going to mean that they're not going to depend on me. You know? That's, 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 what that means is those people pass out of my control. I, I, I can't control those people. They're listening to a different voice. They're marching to the beat of a different drummer. They may not care whether I stop their paycheck. See what I'm saying? You know, a radical dependence on Christ imparts incredible freedom to the individual who's following Christ. You don't have to worry about those other things. And that can be very unnerving, frankly, to people in administrative positions. And I think this is why George Butler referred to them as young fledglings. These whippersnappers, that's not his term, but I'm, I'm putting the words in his mouth here. These whippersnappers from the West Coast. They're not listening to the people who, who call the shots around here. Well, no, that was true. And that was wrong, up to a point, on the part of Jones and Wagner. Before 1888 ever happened, Jones and Wagner had published some articles for which they were reproved by the Spirit of Prophecy. And Ellen White told them, she said, you should not have published those articles. You should have worked together with your brethren. We should present a united front before the world, showing that Oh, well, the guys at the review say this, but we say this. That's, that's a way to create havoc. And they were reproved. She says, souls will be lost because of what you've done. She makes a very insightful commentary on human nature. She says, there's always going to be somebody who will focus on the contention and make that the issue. You know, Oh, yeah, yeah, it's the law in Galatians, brother. I'm in on this side. Yeah, yeah. Which side are you on? Yeah. And so Jones and Wagner were human beings. They felt this dependence on Christ, which gave them a great deal of independence from human beings. That's a good thing, if it's always used properly. <laughs> you see what I'm saying? You know? It's a good thing. The ideal, I suppose, is for everyone to feel a full dependence on Christ, to have a full supply of everything they need from Christ, and yet always be in unbreakable bonds of fellowship with their brethren. Does that make sense? I would submit that that's an incredibly difficult balance to maintain. That's the balance that... When you're opposed by your brethren, you know, how do you, how do you, how do you put up with it? Let's see if I can find a, oh, let's see. Uh, I'm going to tell you the story rather than try to read it. No, I'll keep this up here now. I might need it sometime. <clears throat> um, in talking about that, Ellen White goes back to illustrate 
the, the issue. She goes back to the 1848 to 1850, the Sabbath conferences, okay? Remember, there's a disappointment. Everything was a mess, okay? 1848, they started meeting together, um, groups scattered around New England, uh, coming together, trying to hammer out some doctrinal positions. Uh, we call that, it took about uh, a two, two and a half years from 1848, the beginning of 1848 to halfway through 1850. It was about, what, eight meetings, I think it was. Um, and she describes how they would do this. And she says they, they'd get together, uh, eight meetings over two some years, it's you know, about every four months or three or four months, whatever, so it wasn't real common. But they'd get together, they'd study, they'd pray. And she says how when someone presented one position, occasionally another brother would act out the natural feelings of the heart. Translated in the common language of the day, I would say something like, they'd get all bent out of shape and act like a jerk. Okay? <laughs> That's the natural feelings of the heart. Okay, so Brother A is saying, well, this is the way I understand this passage. And Brother B is saying, oh, please. That is like so obviously stupid. You know? And she, she described how they would fight that and fight that and fight that. And the one who was ridiculed would go to the other and say, come, let us keep Jesus in our midst. We cannot be divided. You know, and they would pray, and they would confess their nasty attitudes, and they'd go back at it again. I would submit that that's a very hard thing to do, from everything of the color of the carpet on up. <laughs> you know? It's just like, ever been on a church building committee? You know, <laughs> you can generate more animosity over the stupidest little issues. You know, brothers and sisters, if we can't figure out how to pray through those things, you know, how are we ever going to pray through some of the big ones? Well, <clears throat> I would submit that that was a part of the, the common human experience that came out of 1888, is that Jones and Wagner had not been deferential enough to satisfy some of the older brethren in Battle Creek. And they could easily take offense at that. After all, they had Ellen White on their side because she said that they'd made a mistake and souls would be lost because they published that. Well, that first, <clears throat> that, um, that first letter, the one reproving Jones and Wagner, was reprinted years and years ago in Testimonies to Writers and Editors. Um, what didn't become available for some while was the next letter on, because what happened is that Ellen White had sent the letter to Jones and Wagner, but she'd sent carbon copies. I don't know if they had carbon copies, yeah, but sent copies of the letter to Butler and Smith. And Butler and Smith read the letter and said, yeah, <laughs> they're wrong. She said so. So we must be right. You know, that, that's not really good logic, actually. And Ellen White pointed that out. She said, I sent those letters to you, not that you would use them as ammunition against your brethren, but that you would exercise the very same caution which they were told they should. Oh. And then she went on, and she said, and now, 
that you've published your pamphlet, Brother Butler, on the law in Galatians. I think it's only fair that Brother Wagner be given the same opportunity. We must have no Phariseeism amongst us, she said. There's this really cute line. She said, ah, if I could quote that, I would do that. Let's see. Here it is. <clears throat> Had you avoided the question, which you state has been done, it would have been more in accordance with the mind of the Lord. <laughs> that's, so, that's so gracious. I like that. You know, she didn't just come out and say the guy was lying. <laughs> she says, had you avoided the question, which you state has been done, you, know, <laughs> you obviously didn't avoid the question. You wrote your whole book about the law in Galatians and you published it. You know? So she says, Wagner, Wagner has a, you know, should give a chance too. There should be, it should be met in fair and open debate. And that was really the, you know, kind of the background calling for 1888. Well, it's, I don't know if you've ever noticed, but you know, it's, it's sometimes difficult to deal with it when somebody offends our pride. And um, I would, uh, without being needlessly un unduly uncharitable, I would hazard the guess that the some of the leading powers that be in Battle Creek were not happy with Jones and Wagner. I know they weren't happy with Ellen White because she supported these guys for crying out loud. I mean, she reproved them, but now here she is after Minneapolis traveling around the countryside talking with them. George Butler sent her a, I don't, I don't remember how many pages, a 32 page or something letter in, in which he said, you know, I'm, here I am, I can't even go to the General Conference here in Battle Creek. I've got a nervous breakdown in, or, or General Conference in Minneapolis because I'm home in Battle Creek and I'm sick. And it's because of you, Sister White, because you're supporting those guys. What am I supposed to do? I'm the General Conference president. How am I supposed to stand up for truth if you, you know? So he was, a, he was one frustrated little camper. You know? George Butler was a good guy. He's a better man than I've ever been. He gave more of his heart and life than I've ever had opportunity or inclination to, I think, that he was wrong. Now, I'm really happy that back or down in 1901, Emma White could write, she says, I've seen a new George Butler. He's been learning his lessons at the feet of Jesus. You know? Let's not write people off so fast. They're our brothers and sisters. You know? Um, okay. Well, Nonetheless, for maybe a host of reasons, and I will point most prominently, first of all, to the animosity of their brethren, but probably other things played a part. Jones and Wagner, of course, had their problems and um, left the church. Um, there's various discussions about whether they left this belief or that belief or something else, and I'm going to just bypass that and move on. Um, the whole Kellogg situation was a great trial for the administration of the church. It was a bad situation. Uh, Jones, of course, was associated with Kellogg pretty closely at the time of Kellogg's uh, being disfellowshipped. And Wagner was uh, tied in as well at various times. So it was easy to see um, Jones, Wagner, and Kellogg as some sort of an axis of evil. Um, thank you. Um, 
And so the issue kind of dropped off the radar screen. You know, if you're an administrator, one of the last things you want to do is be drawing attention to big problem areas in your administration, you know? You know anybody can relate to that. Um, I've been a teacher most of my life, vice principal and principal, and I can assure you that from an administrator's point of view, the last thing you want to do is be raising issues that you thought you settled once. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's, it's dead. It's gone. Leave it alone. You know, don't bring that up again, for crying out loud. So I think it's safe to say that that played a role in the kind of dropping off the screen of the whole 1888 thing. Went all the way through the teens, 19 teens, into the 20s. Not much being said about it that I'm aware of. Help me out, Fred, if there's anything I'm missing here. <laughs> I believe it was 1927. Um, A.G. Daniels wrote a book. Daniels had been the General Conference President from 1901 to 1921, I think it was. And um, there's evidence you know, that he, he really really wanted to be the general conference president to the time of the second coming. Well, I can, I can sympathize with that, you know. Um, I want to live to the second coming too. And there were some issues when he was replaced as general conference president. That was, you know, a little bit sticky, a little tacky, some things uh, going on there. But it was a good thing. And Elder Daniel said so himself, that, you know, after 20 years in that position, he needed a little time to slow down and think and do some praying and whatnot. 1927, he wrote a book entitled Christ Our Righteousness. And it focuses largely on righteousness by faith. Deals with Jones and Wagner. Deals with 1888. In a... Another sense, I think it's almost Daniel's way of saying, you know, I, I want to get back to the things that really matter in my own life. And he confessed. He says, you know, I, I, I have not taken the time. I haven't had the prayer life I should have had. I was busy. It's a tough job, you know. Um, but Daniel's, took an interesting position. He said, the loud cry began, and I believe he said, it went away. I don't remember exactly how he phrased it, but the point is, he said, something was there 40 years ago. This is 1927. It's like 39 years since 1888. I almost think he was maybe thinking 40 years in the wilderness, you know, type of thing. Um, Coming back to Kadesh Barnea, let's take another crack at this. And he said, We've, we lost something of immeasurable value. And he did his best. He you know, goes through and he analyzes and he says, This is, he, read, he does these spirit prophecy statements and he says, Look at every sentence. Every sentence here is worth belaboring. You know, this is what Ellen White said. There was something there of great value. And. It hasn't turned out the way it should have, basically. 
Well, um, from what I understand, and I don't have a lot of information on this, but Daniel's book kicked up a little bit of interest and a bit of a bit of a revival of the topic. But it kind of faded away after a few years. I don't really know of anything going on concerning 1888 to speak of in the 30s, 40s, any public way, not aware of anything. There were some history books written, Adventist history books. They mention it, but not to draw any great attention to you know, the Minneapolis conference. It just kind of read right over it. Um, probably the, um, the next decisive event is the injection into the discussion of two gentlemen by the name of uh, Robert Wheland and Donald Short. Um, good men. I respect both of them highly. Um, <clears throat> there's an interesting document. I think you can find it if I'm... Actually, I think I did find that. Have I? Get my little screen going here. It's one of the few things I might want to show you. Yeah. Um... I don't know if you can read that. It says, Out of Africa, 1888 Reexamined Turns 50 by Dennis, I don't know how to pronounce his name. Uh, anybody know how to say it? Hokama? I'm not sure exactly how it's pronounced. This is on the, uh, on the 1888 Message Study Committee website, I believe. Um, it was also published in, what, Adventist Today or something like that, I think. You know, so kind of an interesting, um, interesting crossover there. We won't go into that any further. Um, but anyhow, <clears throat> it's a helpful historical document. It tells basically the story of uh, how 1888 came back into the public limelight. <clears throat> um, I will uh, try and tell you in a Reader's Digest convinced version here, just because we're going to run out of time. Um, <clears throat> when Robert Whelan was in college, he had a, a college professor who, gave, who lent him a copy of the Glad Tidings, one of Wagner's books. And Whelan thought it was quite a good book, so he took it and pre-Xerox machine typed out several chapters <laughs> for himself. I would die without a photocopier. <laughs> Anyhow, he, he types this out and cherished the thoughts that he gained from this book by, by Wagner. Well, <clears throat> Wieland went off to Africa as a missionary and just about lost it when he got to Africa because... Well, the, the far and away the most glaring issue was 
the laxity of sexual morals within the African church. Um, just wasn't much of an issue. And he had a lot of, even the expatriate missionaries tell him, that's just a part of the culture. He can't change it. And Wheeland was about ready to throw in the towel and say, you know, if that can't be changed, we're all, you know, we're all messed up here. <laughs> you know, if, if you can't hold the line on anything, you know. And so in his study, in his frustration over that issue, he went back to this, these, these chapters he typed out. And he re-examined Wagner's portrayal of Christ, who was one who was like us in a nature like ours, who suffered the same temptations and trials and, and, and gained victory over the same issues that, that deal with us. And using that motif, he was markedly more successful <laughs> in working with the, the, uh, the native population there in, uh, where was he? See, I think he was in Kenya, if I remember right. And, and it resonated. And when he could go to the people and say, listen, Jesus was like you. It was not different from you. He fought the same battles. He felt it was a, a, a blessing to the, to the church members. It was helping things out a lot. And so he came back in, what, must have been 1949, I suppose, something like that, on furlough. Um, <coughs> If I were really on the ball, I could find this all right here. But, you know, <clears throat> I'm going to go ahead with my verbal version of it. I recommend looking it up. It's a fascinating account, and that way you'll get all the little details right that I gave you wrong. But, yeah, it's on the, uh, the title again is Out of Africa, 1888 Reexamined Turns 50. Just Google it. <clears throat> um, Wheeland came to the United States with the intention of going to the seminary for about a year and then taking in the General Conference of 1950. Um, he'd just barely gotten started in the seminary when one of his professors was lecturing on righteousness by faith. And the illustrations the gentleman kept using didn't mesh with Leland's concept of righteousness by faith at all that he'd gotten from reading Wagner. He felt it was promoting the necessity of human works in a way that he just, just didn't, didn't work for Wieland. So he talked to the professor, didn't gain any real satisfaction, and he went straight to the then president of the seminary and expressed his concerns. Um, There we go. Um, the, the upshot of his concerns to the president was that he was given 24 hours to leave the seminary and move out of the school housing that had been provided. Um, that was a change in plans. And I think it traumatized the man. <laughs> um, Instead, he went down to Florida and began a campaign of gathering information 
Uh, actually, before he left Washington, D.C., he went to the White Estate. And he said, I, I'm curious about 1888. <coughs> well, as it happened that particular day, um, Well, I don't know. I don't know if the, changing the names to protect the innocent is worth it. <laughs> but that particular day, Arthur White wasn't there. Let's put it that way, okay? Uh, and I think it was Denton Reebok, if I remember the story right. The, the gentleman who was gave Elder Wheeland a, a folder full of information on 1888. And Wheeland said, wow, that's fascinating. Do you mind if I bring in my typewriter and copy some of this out? And so he was typing like mad. He wanted to come back the next day. Well, he came back the next day, and somehow the rules had changed. And now the information he was given was actually just the original source materials for testimonies to ministers, which does deal with 1888 to some degree, of course. But as he already had a nicely bound copy of testimonies to ministers, he didn't see the necessity of typing it out again, I guess. <laughs> but no, they weren't going to give him anything. And I think what that did is in Elder Whelan's mind, it established the thought that there's something that I would call, I don't think he, I don't, I'm not trying to put words in his mouth, established the thought that there was what I would call a, a theological root. There is some, my wording here, some magic bullet, some theological gem, something buried in the vaults, and they won't let me see it. And so from 1950 on up into the 1980s, I think that idea prevailed. There was a, something of a bunker mentality at the White Estate at times. Now, why is this? It's because people are real and people are sincere. Let's back up a little bit. Who was running the White Estate? By and large, Arthur White. Grandson of Ellen White, son of Willie White. Willie had gone through 1888. Willie had gone through a lot of things. One of the key lessons that Willie learned is that controversy in the church is rarely a blessing. That's what Ellen White had said. Present a united front. If you pick a fight with somebody you know, else in the church, souls will be lost. Willie learned that lesson. And he impressed that lesson on his son, Arthur. Arthur, by temperament, I think, was even less confrontive than, than Willie was. I don't mean it to be disrespectful, but there are times in the history recorded by Arthur White I've never seen anybody who is so adept at taking a mountain and turning it into a molehill. Um, it's just, you know, he, he can kind of make things pretty smooth. <laughs> and I think that became second nature to him. It was, it was not a bad man. I respect him. Again, he's a better man than I am. But it was his second nature to, to damp down controversy. And I think that's what he was trying to do. You don't need some big fight over 1888. I thought we buried that once. From an administration point of view, it's easy to understand. Well, finally, 100 years had rolled by, coming up on 1988. 
And somebody prevailed to change the policy. And they said, you know what? Maybe it's been long enough. Let's dump everything we've got. Familiar with the 1888 materials, those four big books, okay? Just dump it, dump it. Just, there's nothing there anyhow, just dump it. So it was dumped out on the public. And those of us who had an interest read through the whole batch. Yeah, I, I didn't, for myself, I didn't find a theological magic bullet. I didn't find it. What I found was a huge number of references to things that I would class as administration. Administrative policies and administrative techniques. Things like not telling people, not micromanaging, right? You know, at one point, there was uh, the culporters were only allowed a single book, and they could only use a single canvas. This was exactly what you had to say. You had to dress this way. You know, there was a point where you couldn't. There was a motion. You know that you couldn't be. Uh, uh, you could never become a pastor unless you'd served as a canvasser for two years. They they kept coming up with these rules, and Ellen White kept writing, and she said, saying, "Quit with the rules already." It says by micromanaging. It says you're killing the chance for the spirit to work with these people. She went to the 1901 General Conference. She stopped in St. Helena, and she said, why don't you do this? Whatever it was, I don't remember. And they said, that's exactly what we want to do, but our board of directors is in Battle Creek, and we have to get them to authorize it. And she says, are you so foolish? Have you no one here with common sense? <laughs> if not, by all means, transport them. <laughs> I'm like, what do you do, run a, run a wand ad for common sense? <laughs> Uh, someone with common sense, please come to St. Helena. <laughs> the micromanagement was killing things. And she said, you know, this is why we need to reorganize the, the conference. General Conference in 1901, the whole reorganization thing. Very much tied into 1888 in, in my book, as I understand it. <clears throat> there wasn't a magic theological bullet. But I really think, and I, I wish I had had a chance to sit down and, and talk. Elder Wheeland is actually the shirt-tailiest of shirt-tail relatives of mine. Um, see if I can get this right. His brother is my stepbrother's stepfather. <laughs> or, no, my, my, my brother-in-law's stepfather. There we go. So, you know, I met him once as, as, a, as, a, as a, a matter of family function. I met him twice as a matter of being an Adventist speaker or whatnot, you know. I wish I'd had the chance to sit down and ask him some of these, these questions, you know, and I didn't. Probably it would have been impertinent for me to anyhow. But I really think that there's been this, this effort to find this theological solution to the problem. And I don't think there's some new startling thing that necessarily needs to come up. I think... Brother Lemon made a comment last night that I can kind of appreciate. He says, maybe we don't need so much startling new truth as, as to get serious about what we already have. <laughs> I think there may be some truth on that in, in 1888 and Righteousness by Faith, too. We do need to take Christ as our sole source, and we need to get serious about that because we still have this tendency to depend on human beings. We still, you know, 
we, we, depending on human beings is the surest way to not do anything dramatic, <laughs> you know? Because administrators hardly ever authorize anything dramatic. Why take a chance, you know? <laughs> Jesus authorizes things that are dramatic. You know? So there's, we still need to take that seriously. We still need to say, Lord, I'm going to depend on you. But at the same time, we need to take seriously, Lord, I am going to work with my brethren. I will not allow this group, this church, to be fractured. I will present a united... I respect Elder Wheatland for that. He did a marvelous job of that over the years. Um, since the 1950s, there's been a flood of books. And it's interesting. They've taken a variety of positions. I really recommend... I recommend what I'll be talking about in the next general meeting. How's that? <laughs> I have to tune in for that one. Um, I think there's, there are, are things that we can do that are, are, are straightforward and practical, but they require faith. They require stepping out of our comfort zone in all sorts of ways. You know, to do things that the Lord asks us to do as individuals that maybe nobody else is going to authorize us to do. And maybe nobody else is going to pay us to do. But to do it in a way that you're not poking a stick in the other guy's eye all the time. It's a hard balance. That's a harder balance than I think any of us understand. Jesus did that. Yeah. It was only that last week that he said some really harsh things about the Pharisees. <laughs> you know? And even then, he did it with tears in his voice. I think there's a lot there to answer the questions about 1888. Okay, well, our time for this session is up, so I will um, stop, and uh, let's just bow our heads for a word of prayer. Father, I just ask your blessing on these general and unspecific thoughts. I pray that you would uh, inspire someone to, to find out more, by all means, find out more, to learn, but more to trust in Jesus to trust him explicitly and implicitly, to take every word that proceeds from the mouth of God and to never surrender it, and at the same time, to pledge absolute loyalty to your church and to your other children on this earth. May we somehow find, Lord, that we can be true to you and yet be united. In Jesus' name I pray. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.